0: A Pediatric Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Suchek, and today we're going to be talking about myocarditis and pericarditis. Joining me, I have Dr. Megan Simpson, who is a future pediatric cardiologist. Thank you, Dr. Simpson, for joining us.
1: So happy to be here.
0: Um, And I think for this talk, we will kind of separate myocarditis and pericarditis, um, but also keeping in the back of our minds that these are two things that are not necessarily super distinct entities, and we do see them presenting together fairly frequently. So we can start by talking about myocarditis. Typically, we do see these kids, right, on GenPeds and often on the cardiology service. They have a wide range of presentations. Sometimes they can look fairly sick, but often I would say they present in a more mild way, and have symptoms that range from chest pain, dyspnea, tachycardia, um, and those types of symptoms. Would would you agree?
1: Yeah, for sure. We do see this a fair bit on GenPeds and then sometimes on the card service. Um, And in older kids, they tend to present with more chest pain and dyspnea. Um, And something that I know the ED doctors like to look out for is tachycardia specifically Um, because that's one of the most telltale signs of myocarditis. Um, And then in younger kids, it's harder for them. Obviously, it can be trickier because they're not often verbal, um, but typically they just don't look like they feel well with lethargy. Um, They can have diaphoresis and kind of fatigue and pallor um, and usually also have fever, um, which we see.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that we often ask when we're getting the history for these kids is, Did they have a recent URI or like GI illness, any kind of viral prodrome that they could have either while they present with what we think might be myocarditis, or they could have had it prior up to about two weeks prior to presentation?
1: Yeah, it's pretty classic. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky, you can get a good history with something like that preceding their presentation.
0: And I think You know, we mostly see acute myocarditis, at least I have in my experience, um, which is where they have the recent illness and they're overall fairly hemodynamically stable, um, but tachycardic and they have chest pain and things like that. But it is good to know that there are other kind of flavors of myocarditis where they can present in fulminant myocarditis, which presents similar to heart failure um, and they have a lot of um, systolic function deficits. Um, And so they can't, you know, kind of pump their blood forward. And so you see those symptoms of heart failure that include things like hepatomegaly, hypotension. When you get an echo on them, they have poor ejection fraction. And they also might have some signs and symptoms of uh, pulmonary edema. There's also chronic myocarditis, which is, again, something we don't see very much. Um, So in this talk, we're mostly talking about acute myocarditis.
1: So we can go over some of the more common etiologies. Um, So the most common etiology of myocarditis would be viral. Um, I think the more classic examples of um, viruses that can cause this are Coxsackie, group B, which I remember learning back in med school, um, and echovirus, which are both enteroviruses. Um, But also parvo, B19 can cause it, and HHV6, and adenovirus, which we do see fairly commonly causing even other things on GenPeds, for sure.
0: Yes, I guess the theory is that the kid gets a viral infection. um, The virus causes this inflammation, and the inflammation directly damages the cardiac myocytes, and then you see some myocyte necrosis, and then in the weeks sort of after the viral illness, days to weeks um they sort of progress and their myocardium becomes progressively more damaged and they have more systolic function deficit. We also see bacterial causes of myocarditis. Um, this is much, much less common than the viral causes, but you know it does warrant kind of thinking about when you're working your kid up. Um, Lyme disease can cause myocarditis as well as other heart-related symptoms like heart block um, and then chagas disease. Um, is something that we see in kids who maybe have a travel history. They've been to places like um, South America, Central America. Those kids might present with like a pericardial effusion. Um, and again, you can imagine we work in the United States and we do see a lot of kids who have a travel history, but that's definitely less common than our classic uh, viral-induced myocarditis.
1: And then we have autoimmune and pharmacologic um, as two etiologies for myocarditis, but I would say we see these much less commonly. One of the ways we can diagnose myocarditis is with an EKG, which um, Christine touched on with talking about the AV block that you can see with um, Lyme disease. You can also get an EKG to just assess for any kind of myocarditis. And the most common finding is sinus tachycardia, which goes along with some of their presentation, which would be tachycardia on vital signs when you look at them, but also when you're looking at the EKG, um, they can have low voltage QRS complexes or T-wave abnormalities. Um, You can also get X-rays, which we commonly get for any kid presenting with any kind of like respiratory symptom or dyspnea, Um, and on that you can see pulmonary edema, Um, You can also look at the heart size, um, which is something we look at often in kids to kind of give us a clue to see if there's any um, dilation or issues with their heart. Um, So we'll measure that. And um, you can also look for an effusion as well, which Christine had mentioned, when you get the more severe cases of myocarditis, you can have sort of biventricular issues. And so they can have backup and have hepatomegaly, but they can also have Um, pulmonary edema as well, depending on how bad it is and what is affected.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the other things we get on these kids in terms of um, workup is definitely some cardiac biomarkers. I think this is one of the more useful things that we get, right? Because we tend to use them as a way to trend how our children are doing once we get them on the inpatient side. Um, But certainly if you're seeing one of these kids in the ER, um, and it would be worth it to send like a troponin, a BNP, and then a CKMB, which is a, a creatine kinase muscle brain isozyme. Um, and one thing to note is that if you have normal cardiac markers that doesn't exclude a diagnosis of myocarditis. Myocarditis is a clinical diagnosis ultimately. but certainly having those elevations, you know, give you a clue that there is some stress going on in the in the heart, um, and that that could definitely be higher on your differential.
1: You can also get echocardiograms, which, depending on the degree of um, dysfunction that the child has, may or may not have any findings. Um, An echocardiogram really can show you the function of the heart and the size of the chambers and things like that, but it's not going to really show you any specific muscle inflammation um, or any sort of things like that that are on sort of a smaller level, for that you would need to have a cardiac MRI, which we can get um, in kids if we're worried about it. And it's recommended especially for long-term management um, in terms of understanding what's been affected and, you know, how to introduce them back into normal daily activities and competitive sports and things like that. It's important to get. But I will say
0: it is kind of interesting because when you're going through this workup for myocarditis, you're thinking, okay, chest x-ray, there may or may not be findings. EKG, there may or may not be findings other than probably some sinus tachycardia. Cardiac markers, there may or may not be findings. Echo, there may or may not be findings, right? And so it's kind of like this very weird um, diagnosis because we get all these things and all of them are plus minus. They may have abnormalities, they may not. And that just kind of goes to show how this is like a very much a spectrum of disease And really, I think we're moving more towards getting the cardiac MRIs. Would you agree? In terms of looking at um, muscle inflammation on imaging, Mm -hmm. the gold standard for diagnosis of myocarditis is a biopsy of the myocardium. But as you can imagine, that's a very invasive procedure. Um, These kids would need to be sedated for that. If they have severe myocarditis, that might not be the best idea um, to make them undergo sedation. So, I have actually never seen someone get biopsied for this, but I'm sure it does happen. Um, I think mostly this is really a true clinical diagnosis. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, especially initially, you're going to want to manage these kids appropriately and diagnosing them clinically before you have some of this confirmatory testing is is pretty important for these kids to have this in your mind because you'd obviously be treating them differently than if they were coming in with pneumonia or because they were dehydrated or something like that and that's why they are tachycardic it's sort of the opposite management in some ways Mm -hmm. so it's important to clinically assess them look at the whole picture kind of feel like if this is on your differential, you're kind of always, it's in the back of your mind. And then eventually they may undergo a biopsy with a cath at some point, but it's not going to be something you're going to wait on to really manage them appropriately for this.
0: Yeah, totally. And, um, as far as management, you know, we mostly do supportive care. Um, we often will trend their troponins and their cardiac biomarkers as kind of, um, a way for us to have some insight into their disease process. Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Um, but supportive care, I will say, we say supportive care and it feels like it means nothing, but um, kids who have myocarditis and they're receiving supportive care, that can mean anything from like vasopressors, inotropes, that can even mean that they're on ECMO. Like we are supporting them from a cardiovascular and hemodynamic standpoint. So that's, that can be a pretty big deal. I think as Megan was alluding to, you know, we don't want to aggressively fluid rehydrate these kids, um, especially if they have some systolic function deficits um, or some biventricular deficits because, you know, where is that fluid going to end up? It's going to end up, you know, down in their liver and in their lungs. And And so those are just some things to consider. Some kids, especially in the more severe spectrum of disease, may require like a ventricular assist device. Um, a lot of them we put on telemetry so that we can make sure that we know, um, if they are going into any kind of scary arrhythmias, um, then, you know, we kind of progress further and further into cardiology world where we start to do medical management, like heart failure therapies and prevent cardiac Mm -hmm. remodeling.
1: This is something that you would be obviously working with cardiology on if they were on a general service. Um, Mm -hmm. And these are the kids that have some element of cardiomyopathy because of their myocarditis. So, like Christine said, these would be the sicker of the spectrum um, and can take a while to get better on their own because like you said, we're just basically able to support them through. Um, We can't give them a medication to fix this or stop, you know, the inflammation or the necrosis or whatever's going on from happening, so we have to bridge them to either their own heart recovering or un- if you know they're bad enough if and don't recover, bridging them to transplant, which luckily is a small minority of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the anticipatory guidance we give them is they they will need um, cardiology follow up. Typically, um, we're seeing some of this more with COVID right now, which will not get into but there are some new recommendations out for the kind of um, cardiac dysfunction we're seeing with misc kiddos um that is somewhat similar to this where they're getting follow-up imaging and um kind of avoiding certain activities for up to six months afterwards and they're sort of following pretty closely with cardiology to make sure that when they go back to their normal life that they're going to be okay and they're not going to have any life-threatening events when they do it
0: mm mm-hmm. Moving on to pericarditis, I think the difference between myocarditis and pericarditis, it seems obvious, but it can be kind of tricky, right? And there Mm -hmm. are some key differences between the two. Of course, pericarditis refers to the pericardium, which is the area around the heart, as opposed to the myocardium, which is actually the muscle tissue. We see a little bit of a different clinical presentation, and we also see slightly different etiologies and variations in how we diagnose and manage these kiddos. Um, so kids who have pericarditis, first of all, pericarditis is more common in adolescent males. And just like myocarditis, we see a history of current or recent viral illness. Um, so did you have a cold in the last two weeks? Did you have a GI or a stomach bug in the last two weeks? Or do you have one currently? Um, those would be good questions to ask. And then often the chief complaint in these kiddos are is going to be... Um, Chest pain. That's really what they come in with. Right. Mm -hmm. And their chest pain is kind of unique in that it improves with sitting up and it's worse with lying down. And so um, they may avoid those positions and end up sleeping, you know, more in an upright position because it's a little less painful. Also, coughing and deep breathing will exacerbate their pain. So that's kind of another clue that you can get Mm -hmm. on your history.
1: Yeah, I would say that part is something to watch because often, I know you know, we see kids a lot for chest pain in the ED and in on the floor for gennipides even and, and clinics. And most of the time it's not the heart, unlike I feel like with adults when it certainly is most of the time, um, depending on what decade of life they're in. And kids, they generally, their heart isn't causing them chest pain in the general healthy population. But this is a case where if they came in and they had chest pain that was worse with coughing and moving and deep breathing and things like that, you would potentially think initially it might be related to musculoskeletal issues. And I would say just be careful because that's one of the ways we obviously can distinguish benign sort of uh, musculoskeletal chest pain from cardiac chest pain is that coughing and breathing deeply doesn't make it worse, but this is sort of one of those cases with inflammation around the heart where it would. So remember to just like kind of always look at the whole picture, but that's something that could be tricky. But their exam usually, like with myocarditis, they're tachycardic. Um, They're on auscultation. The sort of classic finding is they have that pericardial friction rub that sort of sounds like a maraca. Uh, sort of creaking leather, if you guys remember from med school. But if there's an effusion, especially like a bigger one, that can be completely gone and absent. So if you don't hear it, I would still be, if you're concerned, stay concerned about it. (laughs) Um, And then you could obviously get Beck's triad if you have um, a larger pericardial effusion that's creating cardiac tamponade, which we actually have seen, I've seen more on GenPeds than I would... um, have anticipated yeah. coming in. Um, totally, and it can either be, um, typically if the infusion's large enough, it can basically make it so that, um, the patient presents with some JVD they're um, they'll have issues with systolic function. So their blood pressure will be low, um, because of the absence of really getting adequate filling. So Beck's triad is muffled heart sounds, the JVD, and the low blood pressure and the best way really to look for jvd is to have the child sort of leaned back at an angle or propped up on their elbows laying down um and sort of just have them turn their head to the opposite direction and you can see there'll be like a column of blood sort of sitting up in their neck um which is not normal and shouldn't be there but yeah we've seen this more than i would like
0: yeah it's interesting because pericarditis is something that we see in otherwise healthy children. So we are talking about something that would present on a general pediatric service, right? Because kids who get this are often, they get it, you know, in the setting of a recent viral illness or a current viral illness. Most commonly, you know, those kids go to Gen P's. They don't go to cardiology. They don't have a history of a cardiac problem. And um, so for us, it's definitely something that we need to be thinking about. Uh, and that kind of leads us into our etiologies of pericarditis, which are very similar to those um, that cause myocarditis in that they're mostly viral. And so, um, again, we see the enteroviruses, um, notably Coxsackie virus and echovirus. We also see adenovirus popping up again. And then, influenza is a big one here um, that causes pericarditis. This has not been a typical year. We have not seen very much flu, but in a normal year where you see tons of flu, when you listen to the heart and you have a kid who's tachycardic and has low blood pressures, you know, you might be worth it to look for jugular venous distension and make sure on your exam you're listening and um, if the heart sounds are more muffled or the kid is more tachycardic than you might have anticipated given their other clinical symptoms, um, it's something definitely to keep in the back of your mind. We also have bacterial causes of pericarditis. Tuberculosis is a cause of pericarditis. um, And that is definitely one to remember. We do sometimes see kids who have acute rheumatic fever. I mean, this is getting less and less common because we're getting better and better at treating group A strep. Um, But that would be something to keep in your differential as well. So yeah, and then diagnosis, pretty similar.
1: Yeah, um, for this EKG may be more helpful with the diffuse ST elevation, something you wouldn't miss in case you're worried because it's pretty obvious. But they also may not have these things on their EKG. Mm -hmm. But other things you can look for are also, um, again, like in myocarditis, low voltage um, QRS complexes. You can also see slurring of the PR interval. Um, But those are, I think the most classic is going to be the uh, diffuse ST elevation on EKG and obviously, you'd see sinus tachycardia as well, um, potentially, um, because these kids typically are tachycardic at times. Um, chest X-ray could be normal. They, If they have an effusion that's on the larger side, they may have a larger cardiac silhouette on X-ray, but it's hard to tell. The other thing I'll say is that for kids, this is going to present more commonly in older kids that can cooperate for an inspiratory um, chest film which will be more helpful in assessing the heart size. Um, Typically with younger kids, when we try to get an x-ray, like a infant or a toddler, you can't really coordinate the x-ray during the inspiratory phase because they're babies and they won't hold their breath for you. And it's really hard to get them to do that on command. So we just sort of take the x-ray when we can get it and often we'll get an expiratory film. And so the lung fields look smaller and the heart can look bigger in comparison. And so in older kids it's more likely to be probably more accurate which is when this is presenting which is useful i think but mm-hmm. um it is something that i did not know until i worked with babies <laughs> um so and then echocardiogram um obviously You can also get and would actually potentially show an effusion if they had it. So um, really, if they're going to have an effusion, it's going to be like Christine was talking about, pericarditis is the inflammation of the fibrous layer that kind of covers the heart. Um, And then on the inside of the pericardium, there's a serous layer that's sort of part of the pericardium. And there's supposed to be like a normal amount of serous fluid in there that's not really visible because it's such a small amount. Um, But when they have an effusion, it's much larger. And it'll sort of show up as this black line around the heart on um, echo, Um, even kind of in a smaller... Volume, you can see it, especially mm-hmm. if you have someone that can get good windows and can really look all the way around the heart. Because a global pericardial fusion isn't always present and typically isn't. I feel like we see more commonly, it's just like on one part of the heart, there's just kind of like this little effusion sitting there. Right. Um, so you could obviously miss it if, if you only look at a couple of places. But um, an echocardiogram might be a little bit more helpful in this than it is in myocarditis. Um, Just because in myocarditis, you won't see much going on unless they're having cardiac dysfunction, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess in terms of further imaging, um, you don't need a cardiac MRI to help diagnose these kiddos. And I guess you can also get troponins, which can be elevated as well, but probably in less kids than the kids we're getting it for for myocarditis. Um, the kids with pericarditis are less likely to have a, um, an elevated troponin.
0: Yeah, so I think really the echocardiogram is kind of helpful because it allows us to distinguish a little bit between myocarditis and pericarditis. But ultimately, for myocarditis, we're doing supportive care. And for pericarditis, we're doing supportive care and NSAIDs.
1: Yeah. And treatment of the inflammation basically. Yeah. Which would be NSAIDs still as the mainstay of treatment for kiddos. I Colchicine is something that they use in gout in adults, but we use it in kids mm-hmm. for pericarditis and it can be helpful um, because it's sort of a benign treatment and some kids who get pericarditis get it frequently or recurrent pericarditis and they can be prone to it. And so these kids can have these meds at home to take if they need, but there isn't really much else Yeah, that we do right now as a mainstay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think like the main differences between myocarditis and pericarditis, I would say the clinical presentation is a little different where in myocarditis, oftentimes the thing that really jumps out at you is the tachycardia, I would say. And then in pericarditis, of course, they do have the tachycardia component, but they're probably more likely to be complaining of chest pain. And then the treatments are a little bit different in that pericarditis, it's really NSAID and colchicine, you know, more oriented. And then in myocarditis, it's really just supportive care.
1: Yeah, I think in myocarditis, we're getting more creative with the stuff that we're doing. Um, Like in some of the literature we've been seeing, some people are using immunologic meds to try to tame the inflammation. But to a certain point, like Christine had mentioned, the necrosis of the cardiac myocyte is something we can't really stop. Um, At this point in time Mm -hmm. with the therapies that we have, so...
0: Or by the time they present, it's already done.
1: Yeah, so there's not that much we can do. Right.
0: Well, on that happy note... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Simpson, for joining me.
1: (laughs) You're so welcome. I'm so glad I could give you an uplifting end to your evening. Yes. But luckily... You guys, these kids typically do great. I have most of the ones I've ever seen, and it's not like I've been working for decades, but um, most of the kids that we admit with myocarditis or pericarditis um, do really well. Um, Mm -hmm. And they can even come back from ECMO runs and all of that stuff and go home and not need a cardiologist for a long time until they're old and they have old man heart disease or something. Yeah. So... This is very, it's a fun field for sure to do in kids. Um, Myocarditis and pericarditis are something that is super fun to manage. Um, It's one of those things where your clinical exam really can come to life, like how you learned it in med school, like seeing Beck's triad and hearing the rub and all of that can be very exciting to see in a patient. And I think it's really satisfying, um, to manage these kids and to have them do well. Most of the time is also a plus.
0: I agree. Thank you, Megan. And um, again, this is MD Notified and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.